Welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you interviews with people from across the globe who are changing the face of sexual health for the better. This is the place to hear about new approaches and initiatives in sexual health, best practice, challenges, and to meet some of the people who are driving change from around the world. My name is Nick Mallon, and I administer the SDI International Exchange, or Sticks. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and please subscribe to receive future episodes. So hi, welcome to Sticks and Stones. We're back across the Atlantic in the US, and today we have Professor Stacey Greiner, who is Assistant Professor from the Department of Health, Behaviour and Health Systems at the University of North Texas. Stacey's doing some pretty innovative stuff and we're delighted to have her with us today. Tell me a little bit about um, who you are, what you do and and how you got into sexual health, Stacey. Sure. So I am, I have a PhD in public health. I graduated in 2019. I also have a master's of public health, which I got right before that. Um, I've kind of had an interesting path to get to sexual health and, and public health in general, which Everybody has a story of how they got into the work they're doing. Um, I love hearing it. It's one of my favorite things when I first start talking to people um, is learning how they got here. I am a dental hygienist by training. I spent about 10 years in practice before I went back to get my MPH. Um, Actually, before I did that, I thought I was going to be teaching dental hygiene school. So I got a degree in education Um, and I, interest, I, I became interested in public health when, so I thought I was going to go into clinical care, right? I thought I was going to go into dentistry. I was talking to some professors that I worked with, and I said, I'm looking to make a difference. Individual patient care, it's, it's not working for me. I'm not having a great time doing it. I feel like I could make a bigger impact. Uh, what, what could I possibly do? And so one of my professors said to me, you should really look into public health. Public health is the future. And I was like, okay, let me check it out. So I learned about public health. I've always been interested in prevention of sexual assault, which is kind of where things started for me. Um, But then I transitioned into doing work with HPV and the HPV vaccine. So HPV vaccine causes a lot of oral cancers as well. So it kind of links my two um, interests in sexual health and um, oral health. So I kind of transitioned from that into sexually transmitted infections, and I've been here ever since. That's my jam. That's what I do now most of the time. Um, So it's been really fun. I've been in my position now. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas, and I've been here since 2019. Thank you, Stacey. So so tell me a bit about the process. So you said a master's in in public health. You You know, I can understand the triggers. You want to do something different. Talk to me about that process. So how long does a master's in public health take? Oh, sure. What does it entail? So if there's people listening to the podcast who are thinking, wow, that sounds exciting. What do I need to do to pivot and change and get in? What what would the process be to do that? Yeah. So a master's in public health degree um, typically is a two-year program. It, it Master's of public health are typically practice-based degrees. When you have a master's in public health, you're going to go into working at a health department, um, working in community settings, things like that. It's not typically a research degree. I transitioned mine. I think I got a lot of really great experiences in the Master's of Public Health program that led me to research and wanting to get a PhD, Um, but it's designed to put you to work in community settings. 
most of the, um, there are five core courses in a master's of public health degree, usually something like biostats or um, some kind of statistical analysis class, epidemiology, which is a, a core concept, um, theoretical concepts or like behavior change course, health policy, and then an environmental health class. So those are the five core components of a public health degree. Um, but then other than that, you're just learning skills that you can apply to any kind of health topic. Um, and I think that's important um, for public health professionals to be able to transition to things that happen in the community and things that change. And COVID is a great example of that. Um, I think we, before COVID, we talked a lot about what pandemics could look like, and now here we are living it. So I think it's important to pe for people who want to go into public health to focus on the skill set rather than the content, because um, that could be applied to anything. Great. So you had your practical placement from the mm -hmm. masters in public health actually with a global pandemic so that's a pretty good uh, pretty good case study isn't it yeah yeah and so I, I think people are learning and everyone knows what public health is now before people didn't really know what we were doing um, in public health so with the pandemic everyone is kind of more aware at least of what epidemiology is and contact tracing and concepts like that now so that's so interesting Stacy because you know you mentioned public health in Europe and it's sort of ingrained in our DNA, the National Health Service in the UK. Right. Can you just go into that a bit sort of further when you say people now know what public health is? <laughs> is what, what, what sort of elements? Is it the engagement side of public health? Mm -hmm. Or is it just the general knowledge of, of a lot of people in the US just wasn't there? Yeah, I think that in the US generally, and let me just say that's the context I'm speaking from, um, public health is under the radar. I think it's kind of, that's our our focus. We, we shouldn't know, we should, people shouldn't know who we are unless things are going wrong. So some things that started in, in my professional career anyway, um, the Flint water crisis was a big one when people started learning about what public health could be. And then COVID I think has really brought everything to the forefront. Um, but kind of my perspective and my training would say that public health should be working under the radar, changing policies and things like that. Um, and focusing on prevention. So people shouldn't really see what we're doing. Hopefully we're preventing these big outcomes from happening. Um, but I do think that's a very um, U.S.-focused um, perception of public health. And have you seen that shift from COVID and that shift in perceptions reflecting sexual health, Stacey? Yes, I think, I, I think so. Um, I think with MPOX, things changed as well. Um, and it's happening right on the heels of it. So I think there's been a lot of changes in, in healthcare in general. I think everyone can speak to that from COVID. Um, but now I think people are more aware of what public health is doing. And it's easier to communicate with the public about what we're doing in sexual health now, that people kind of have a baseline knowledge of how we are doing surveillance, how we are doing contact tracing, things like that. It's, it's the similar process for sexual health and sexually transmitted infections. Um, so I do think it's a little bit easier to communicate about it with the public now. Um, it's unfortunate that it took a pandemic for us to get there, but we're here now. And hopefully the evolution can continue without necessarily having to go through another, another yes, pandemic. Please. Yes, please. No more. No more <laughs> pandemics, please. I think we, we all agree on that one, don't we? Um, so tell me a little bit. So, you, you know, are you, how did you end up in Texas. Are you from Texas originally? Talk to me about that uh, a little bit. Yes, I am from Florida originally. Um, Florida and Texas are very 
conservative political context. Um, so it is an easy transition for me. Um, I've been in Florida my whole life. I came out to Texas um, once I graduated all of my trainings in Florida um, because I had a colleague who I've been working with um, during my training. We were in the same doctoral program. Um, I came out here because she was out here and she's an excellent collaborator. So we've kind of set up um, in, in my school now, there are five of us that graduated from the same university. So she came out first, then I came, and then we've recruited three other people who we worked with um, from our, from the university where we did our training. So we have like a, a mini Florida base here. Um, and that's one of my favorite things about my job is getting to work with people who I enjoy working with and pitching ideas and talking about what we're going to do next with a group of collaborators that I've had a longstanding relationship with. So that's how I ended up in Texas. Um, we'll see. It's it's going pretty great now. I think there's a lot of a lot a lot of room to improve sexual health here um, and work within policy constraints. So I think that's a skill that I'll be using uh, forever. And I think Texas is a good place to kind of um, learn under that pressure. Let's just sort of pivot back. I'm, I'm really interested to hear about those policy constraints and, and what they oh, are. Sure. But maybe before that, if you just sort of talk about your research and what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I started out, like I said, if I were describing what I do to someone um, who's in the research field, I would say I do implementation science of sexually transmitted guidelines and policies. So I'm looking at once we have a guideline or a policy what does it look like to actually put that in practice and how can we make sure that the translation gap, which is once you have clinical or research evidence proving that something is effective, to get that into standardized practice care takes about 17 years. So it's a huge gap. I am hoping that some things that I do in my career can reduce that gap so we can move quicker onto things. Um, so I'm trained in implementation science, which is how to put things into practice, whether that's a program in a community setting, a policy, um, could, could really be anything. And also dissemination science. So how do we communicate with the public or communicate about interventions to research professionals? So this all kind of started when I was doing my dissertation work. Um, it started with self-sampling for chlamydia and gonorrhea infections as a method of screening. Um, I know there's some language differences. I've kind of leaned lately to call it consumer-based testing because what I'm really focusing on is I'm, I'm focusing on more of the process. So the process before you actually are collecting the sample. So ordering, getting stuff paid for, things like that. So I've started calling it consumer-based testing or direct-to-consumer testing. Um, so I've been working a lot on that. I've been doing interviews, qualitative, uh, quantitative surveys to kind of get a perception of if we were developing an intervention, particularly among young adult women or in the college setting, what does it look like to have an intervention for self-sampling? Uh, so that's where it started. It's wound up into a lot of different things. Um, so self-sampling, we're still working on that. Now we're working on some other methods of prevention. So chlamydia and gonorrhea vaccines. We're getting some information about acceptability there because that's the first piece um, before we'll have to disseminate information or translate it into practice. And I think we have a lot of examples that we've learned from HPV. So hopefully we can apply some of that um, across the translation process. 
Um, let me think about what I'm, else I'm working on. I made a list so I wouldn't forget. So direct to consumer stuff, um, implementation of guidelines and policies. So this is kind of focused on chlamydia and syphilis specifically in Texas. Um, congenital syphilis has increased about 650% over the last couple years. It's wild. It's wild. Um, so in response to that, Texas previously required screening um, twice uh, during pregnancy, once in the first trimester and then again in the third trimester. So in response to this increase in rates of um, congenital syphilis, they added a third time point, so screening at delivery in hopes to reduce the um, rates. But they released this policy. It wasn't well communicated to healthcare providers. It wasn't well translated into practice. So there's a big gap there. Although this is a great intervention and a potential way to intervene, it wasn't translated well. So there's a, a very big gap in how we disseminate policy information and policy changes. Um, so I've done some quali uh, some surveys about that with healthcare providers to kind of understand what this looks like. Um, practice setting is a big influential factor if you're in a hospital setting. It's definitely different than your own private practice um, and how you implement guidelines. And I've also done some interviews to dig into it a little bit deeper. And I'm submitting that to the World Congress, so hopefully um, I'll get to talk about it a little bit more once we get there. Um, so that's what I'm working on lately. There's a bunch more stuff I can go into, um, but those are kind of my two favorite things right now. Very interesting. And, and that sort of defines what you said as well um, around the policy challenges as well about mm -hmm. getting them implemented and making sure that they're not only there, but the people who need to know about them know about them. Right. So fantastic. So look forward to hearing more in, in Chicago yeah, thanks. Um, in, in July. <laughs> and, and tell me, you mentioned the the sort of two main projects at the beginning, Stacey, mm -hmm. which were around the self-sampling mm -hmm. and then around the vaccination. What were the sort of main conclusions of your research into, into those areas? What were the, the findings that, uh, that I think would be of most interest for the group to, to, to know? Yeah, this is, um, one, again, one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'll start with the direct-to-consumer or the self-sampling stuff. It was really unique in doing these interviews because I think it's a, it's also a reflection of how I interpret the work that I do. So I went in thinking, I'm talking to 18 to 24-year-olds. I felt like I was not that far outside of that age group. I am, but I felt like I wasn't. But then in talking to them, I realized how truly different we are and what the generational differences look like. Um, and so I'm really glad we had these conversations because as a researcher, what I thought was not accurate. Um, so that's good to know. So we were looking at acceptability and barriers to using self-sampling. One of the most unique things that came up is that women were really concerned about um, their samples being contaminated um, whether that is um, once you've collected a sample, putting it on your counter or something in the air, um, lots of discussion about cont potential contamination, which had not crossed my mind at all. Um, and then the second thing was, so the, the self-sampling process that we pitched to them was ordering a kit online, um, getting the kit mailed to your house, which everyone was fine with because we all use Amazon or other delivery services. So we know how to get mail. 
Um, they knew how to get mail. Um, collecting their sample and then it's prepaid postage. So just dropping it in a mailbox or mailing it back in. They were concerned about someone tampering with it um, through the mail process. So there were a lot of different things that led up to ultimately their results being perceived as inaccurate um, or something that they couldn't really trust because of all these other things that might be happening. So the, the contamination and the tampering were really unique to me, but then also the process of mailing it back. Um, the women who I was talking to in this age group don't typically return things in the mail. They're not used to mailing things. They can receive mail. Um, if they have a return, they're usually taking it somewhere else and someone else is taking care of it. They're not putting postage on something. So one of the big things I found out was that they don't know what this process is like mailing it back. They didn't know where to put it. Um, we have like the big blue mailboxes where you just drop stuff in. I was explaining that to them. They don't use those regularly. It's out of their comfort zone. Um, also, they didn't... Um, Prepaid postage was a concept that they didn't really understand or what they needed to do. So that was super, super interesting, right? I think we go into these things thinking like, absolutely, it's so easy for someone to order online and then send their kit back to get their results. But it's not that easy. And that's not what these people who I talked to were interested in doing. It's um, so interesting. Ultimately, isn't, it? Yeah. isn't it? Ultimately, they wanted to be able to drop it off on campus somewhere. Somewhere safe so that it wouldn't be tampered with, um, but not having to interact with the postal system at all. And it's something that we take for granted, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The postal system, yeah. what you were saying about the differences in generation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I find that I've got two teenage boys. So every time I, I tell a joke, <laughs> I, I realize there's a big difference in, in right? generation or try and play soccer with them. But uh, um, no, it, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And the changes in perception mm -hmm. and maybe some of the guidelines. And, you know, we, we give instructions about the sampling and what people need mm -hmm. to do. Maybe we need to go back and give instructions about the postal system and how that works. Yeah. I know um, Preventex in the UK, when we've done public sector programs, one of the innovations they did was to put in... Um, in the instructions, a map with the nearest mailbox. Smart. So people could find um, where to go. So that was really, really That's interesting and a really good way to, to, to help people with the, the yeah. postal system. Yeah, so that's interesting. Another thing that we looked at was um, kind of the social factors that were associated with this. So it kept coming up, even though it wasn't a, a thing that we were asking about. We were talking more about the process, but... Um, some of the th so it was very similar to what we see with traditional methods of STI screening, right? There's a stigma associated with it. They don't want people to know they're doing it. Um, there's just a lot of social factors influencing things there. And they talked a little bit about um, also the assumptions that people will make about them for having a kit like this or um, ordering something like that to test themselves for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Most of that was about... Um, the assumption that if you're testing for something, you have you have uh, an infection. Just that assumption that it's not a, a method of prevention. It's a like screening for treatment almost. And that's a perception that's in, um, especially among young adults um, in the samples that we talk to. So very unique, just very interesting um, and aligns with a lot of previous work uh, about STI testing. So um, there's some other things coming out. Um, one of my doctoral students who I work with has a paper under review from this data set, and it is about the opinion leaders 
that we might consider um, when we're trying to disseminate information about self-sampling methods. So a lot of that was on a, on a local context. So within this college setting that you're living in, in your small little community, who would you want to hear about self-sampling from or how can we best communicate with you? And then the second piece was who are the celebrities or influencers that you trust and would want to hear this information from? So I'm hoping that paper moves forward soon because it is so neat. So let's take a short break to bring you a message from one of our sponsors. AuraSure are the makers of AuraQuick HIV self-test, which uses oral fluid to check for antibodies to HIV type 1 and HIV type 2, the viruses that cause AIDS. The kit is designed to allow you to take the HIV test anonymously and in private with the collection of an oral fluid sample by swabbing your upper and lower gums with the test device. And it's it's so important now, isn't it, with, with the younger generations. What is more worrying that you said, Stacey, is the perception still, and this is a sexual mm-hmm. health professional, so stigma that we're fighting against, that mm-hmm. people are still worried about testing they feel they'll be judged if they test, you know, if they test yeah. regularly. Um, whereas we all know it should be something that people incorporate into into a lifestyle. It's the way of the world. You know, we we all get infections um, mm-hmm. of, of different natures, and you test and you, you you treat them. So just fighting against that still that perceived stigma yeah. for a lot of people. And and tell me a bit about the vaccination. I have been talking to some colleagues about kind of where we're headed into in the STI field. So what's the new innovations? How are we moving forward? Um, because if if I want to focus on implementation science in my career, it, it's best to start really early so you can translate things really well into practice. So if I can get ahead and be involved in the entire process, um, it theoretically should make things easier um, when we're trying to disseminate or implement these things into practice. So we're headed that direction, I think, with STIs. We've seen it with um, HPV and there's other vaccines in the works. Um, So we were asking people hypothetically about chlamydia and gonorrhea. We asked about them separately. Um, Vaccines. What's the acceptability there? What kind of barriers are you seeing? So we talked to young adults age 18 to 24 and then parents of kiddos who um, their kids were 10 to 17 years old. We're making some assumptions there about who the potential end users could be just based on what we've seen in the past. Um, So in talking to them, um, we were using a a theory called the health belief model. So an individual level theory about how people perceive their risk or susceptibility to infections. And then we also asked about some barriers too. So what I found most unique, and this is still in data analysis, so these are very preliminary results, but um, there are di- pretty significant differences in how parents and young adults view these vaccines. It was actually these vaccines were actually more acceptable to parents of kids ages 10 to 17, which is not what I anticipated seeing. Um, I thought that young adults would be super receptive to these things, um, and acceptability was pretty low, and it was higher among parents. Um, and the vaccine barriers, so potential barriers that we could address going into this and knowing them before we actually implement something. Um, There were concerns that the chlamydia vaccine wouldn't work or wouldn't be effective. And then the biggest concern for the gonorrhea vaccine was concerned about contracting gonorrhea from the vaccine. Um, So it's very interesting. This is based on, um, it's kind of an exact model of what we did with HPV vaccines when they were being um, 
first launched. I'm just replicating that among chlamydia and gonorrhea to see how we could potentially intervene. Uh, so it's very interesting to me looking at the barriers, particularly because if we know them up front, I think we could do something about it. Um, but also submitting this to the World Congress, I'm looking at sexual and gender minority perceptions, um, young adult perceptions about the vaccine. Um, and I'm super interested in that too. And I hope it starts a conversation about how we approach these in the future because we're headed that direction pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And again, another link back to COVID with the whole vaccination oh, sure, and sure, that sure. whole perception as well. So another sure. huge learning point that's coming out from the pandemic again, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Lots of vaccine stuff. Vaccine, the, con the, the landscape has totally changed. Um, so we collected some data from both of these groups about um, if they have the HPV vaccine and if they got the COVID vaccine. And we're going to look at the relationship between the new STI vaccines and those two vaccines too, to see if they're related. And do you think without, you know, um, giving, giving the game away or, um, <laughs> um, you know, spoiler alert on your presentation in Chicago, yeah. but do you feel that COVID has changed people's approaches to vaccination for the better or has it been more negative? What's your sort of initial gut feeling? My initial gut feeling is it has changed things for the worse. For the worse. Yeah. Is, um, is that a text yeah, Here thing? anyway. Yup. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. Um, this, The data we collected are on a national level. Um, we It's not represented uh, the population or anything. It was a convenient sample. Um, I think just generally speaking, because I do some work with HPV vaccine too, and translating into practice among dental hygienists. So if the HPV vaccine can prevent oral cancer, we can use dentists and dental hygienists as another recommendation point um, to recommend the vaccine. And what I see from vaccines is that people are uncomfortable talking about them in general. So I'm looking for community partners now to partner with me on an event. And it's about oral health and HPV vaccine, right? And that seems to me as a researcher, um, not controversial at all. That seems like one of the least controversial things I work on, actually. Um, but to get the response from community partners, they're very uncomfortable talking about recommending vaccines, especially if those vaccines could be potentially linked to sexual activity or anything related to sex. Um, but I, I think that would continue on to recommending any kind of vaccine. So, you know, if, if you take some pretty conservative places, you know, you've got two mm -hmm. of the hot buttons, haven't you? Vaccination. And sexuality, yeah. you know, two of the sort of warning signs or the oh yeah, or the red lights. So, so you, <laughs> you, you you mentioned the community partners, Stacey. Mm -hmm. You know, as an implementation scientist, I imagine that's a key part. It's taking what you do and then working with the community healthcare partners and others to implement it to see how it works in the inverted commas real world. Talk to me mm -hmm. about who who those community partners are. How you find them? You know, how does that work from you being an academic? to sourcing those community partners? Yeah, that's been something I've had to learn very quickly. I had a, a great community network when I was in Florida because I had my whole life to build it up. Now I'm here. Um, I moved here. I started in uh, 2019. So right before the pandemic is when I moved here. So it was difficult to find those partnerships. And my university is also, so I do a lot of implementation into clinical practice, whether that's in federally qualified health centers or community um, health centers or into private practice or hospital settings. Um, 
But it is difficult because everyone is now overwhelmed with other kinds of work. So in talking with um, vaccine managers or people who manage vaccine programs at health departments, which I see as a primary partner, they're overwhelmed with working on COVID vaccines, um, addressing impox stuff. And so they have limited resources to address things that they per- could perceive as elective or other things that are not recommended um, as of yet anyway. So that's been difficult, but you know, I've had a lot of success and a lot of investment working with some grassroots organizations that are focused on health equity. Um, in, in my specific area here, it started with um, working on maternal and child health issues and it's kind of evolved just into health equity in general. Um, I have a really great partnership with uh, the STI clinics in town, of course, and we have one that is a primarily focuses on trans populations and gender diverse populations. They're trying now to kind of expand and um, become primary care settings rather than just STI settings, which I think is really unique. And actually, I think where a lot of STI work is heading is implementing STI care, PrEP, um, any kind of prevention method that we have into primary care settings so that all kinds of health care providers know how to talk about it. Um, all kinds of healthcare, anyone who someone may interact with that's a healthcare provider has this information and can do testing, treatment, and education about STIs. Um, so it's been really interesting. My community partners are one of my favorite parts of my job and getting to work with them because it is great to translate stuff into practice. Um, I always worried about becoming one of those researchers who just did research like in my own setting and translated it only through um, publications or through conference presentations. And that stuff is super valuable, especially when you're on a tenure track um, job and it's, you know, traditionally respected in academia. But I think translating this stuff into the community is the most important part of the work we do. Absolutely. So so that that was very interesting, Stacey. So to, to sort of recap, it will be public health partners, clinics, not-for-profit sort of community mm-hmm. groups who are advocating um, for access to, to sexual health. Do those tend to be, you know, you mentioned the local sexual health clinics. Is it very much mm-hmm. at local level around the university or do you have some far-reaching partnerships geographically as well? I'm working now on developing partners, um, industry partners. I think that's a, a cool opportunity to put some clinical trials into practice among these clinics, um, get some work communicated quickly and tested quickly. Uh, Texas is huge, 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 huge. And there are little pockets um, within Texas. So Texas as a whole, very conservative, but there are little pockets of towns, cities where people are more receptive and um, uh, more open to discussion. So I have been kind of siloed in my local um, I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, so it's huge. There are a ton of people here, um, but it's it's a, it's very difficult to work with our um, policymakers and changing any kind of sexual health policy in Texas because of uh, the constraints that we're working under. So I stick with mostly, although I, I'd love to do work and change stuff at a, a federal level or a state level, most of the policies that I focus on are our clinic level policies 
um, or recommendations that come down from professional organizations like guidelines and translating those into practice. Um, I do hope that when I'm more senior in my career, I can cross over into into um, higher level policy change and do that kind of policy work. Um, but I don't think I'm there yet. I need a couple more years. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully this this helps and and gives some visibility. Yeah. So uh-huh. uh, yeah, if anybody's thinking, anybody out there listening is thinking of promoting Stacy, then we can we can start advocating for that now. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, please send me an email. <laughs> so, so just going back to that that conservatism, I and mean, you mentioned Florida, where you come from, and, and Texas mm-hmm. being some quite conservative states. So is the sort of Dallas Fort Worth area is that a bit of a beacon compared to some? Mm-hmm. I, I imagine compared to some rural parts of Texas and some other cities. Oh yes. there is, yeah, yeah. So you can actually For get sure. some stuff done, and, and there are people that you can bounce off and and, and partner yes. with. Yes, thankfully, I think this work would be really, really difficult if I was in a different location. And can you ever see that changing? Or do you think the attitudes and the approaches are are too ingrained? I am not sure. You know, I always have a hope. And that's one of the reasons why I am here in Texas. Um, You know, because I could work anywhere in the U.S., but I think there's a lot of opportunity in Texas. And if we all my initial response is I need to go somewhere where this work is easier. Um, but then there will be no one left doing the work. So there's a lot of opportunity here, even if it's incremental change. Um, that's what I try to stay focused on now, like one step at a time and, and hopefully moving things forward. But I do have hope. Good. And don't, uh, <laughs> don't, don't lose that. Uh, don't lose that hope. However, yeah. however hard it may, may get. And, and you mentioned that you're looking now to work with industry partners. So, mm-hmm. so when you say industry partners, what would that be? Would that be commercial providers offering SDI testing? Would it be laboratories? Um, would it be organizations that are promoting sexual health, you know, or all of the above? Yeah, I would work with anyone um, and, and I would be willing to uh, consider all of the options. What I've noticed in in talking with some of the indus- potential industry partners is most of them are looking for sites for clinical trials, um, and I'm happy to help with that and um, facilitate this because we have a lot of STI clinics who are interested. Whether that's um, testing a new methodology, testing a point of care test, um, things like that. So that I th- I see as my role, kind of a connector. Um, from industry partners to community partners, um, but also assisting with the research and being involved in that too. Great, understood. No, thank you. Thank you very much, Stacey. <laughs> this is a question that we always ask on the podcast, but if we were having this interview now in five years' time, um, where would you like to be and what would you like to have achieved if we sort of did a before and after? Five years? Five years from now. Okay. Yeah. So 2028. One thing that I'm struggling with now is that it is difficult to get funding for STI-related research. Even if it's – I feel like I'm making a good case for it. It's a significant public health issue. But it's difficult to find the organizations that want to fund it. So I would like to develop some partnerships – or become more successful or identify the 
best way to go to seek funding for this work. Um, I've tried to link STIs with other health problems so that um, it not, I'm not saying flies under the radar, but it's linked with something else to make it, um, I guess, a little bit more perceived differently, I would say. So I've done that with oral health. I've done that with uh, maternal and child health. So linking it back to pregnancy outcomes or neonatal outcomes, because um, those are very valuable in society and also by funders. Um, I guess I would say in five years from now, I would like to have graduated a few doctoral students who feel confident enough going out into the STI world to be successful. Um, I would like to continue with my academic career um, and be successful. I am on the tenure track now, so hopefully by then, having gone up for tenure and promotion. Um, and I would like to see in Texas prenatal syphilis rates significantly decreased. Um, that's a, yeah, for sure. That is, um, I, I think, a real opportunity to intervene. It is so surprising to me. It happens so quick too. So hopefully we can get that under control. Just pivoting back on something that you said, Stacey, you, you mm -hmm. said about the funding and how mm -hmm. difficult it is and the fact that you've got to tie it to, to other areas. How, how does, you know, in academia, how do the funding streams actually work? So if you're applying for funding, does that work at federal level? Does it work at state level? Who are the bodies that you'd be reaching out to just to help us understand that? I think it depends on your institution and what's valued for tenure um, of in my school of public health and my department, um, NIH funding or National Institutes of Health funding is very valuable. And there are a couple of agencies that I feel like are receptive to, or institutes that are receptive to STI work. Um, but NIH funding, uh, federal funding is the most prestigious. That would be the, um, the best received uh, funding that I could get. But most of my funding has been local partnerships and community-based organizations. Um, so now I'm working with a cancer prevention um, organization to increase HPV vaccine. Um, I got a little bit of funding from the American STD Association. Um, so it's really identifying those bits and pieces where we can intervene. And I actually think there's some state-level funding too, since we have a specific problem in this state, um, that might be beneficial and definitely would have a, a very applied impact. Um, and it's more practice-based than research-based. So that would be cool too. Um, yeah, a lot of, um, so in addition to federal funding, I'm on, I'm on this one project that is um, also federally funded. It's a five-year project and it's about um, the national HIV curriculum. So we have a big HIV curriculum and translating it into practice or implementing it into health professions programs that we don't typically think about. So instead of just focusing on physicians, maybe focusing on uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, um, and school of public, public health professionals as potential resources to, to talk about HIV um, prep, HIV prevention, things like that. So I think there's a bunch of unique funding opportunities. I just haven't 
you know, I'm still fairly early in my career. I'm starting my fourth year. So I'm trying to be gentle on myself and know that I'm still figuring it out. Um, but I am open to feedback <laughs> if anybody has any ideas. Um, I do think there's a lot of opportunities, though. Great. So we've already put in a good word for the promotion, Stacey, and now we'll <laughs> do the outreach for the funding as, as well. Yeah. Um, Solving all my problems today. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you very much. That's so, so interesting to look into. Um, and then just final question. Um, if somebody came to you, you know, one of your students, um, one of your collaborators, um, a few years younger and said, I'm considering a career in sexual health, what advice would you give them? I would tell them to focus on biomedical, innovative biomedical approaches to addressing STI care. I think that is where we're headed. Um, I would 100% encourage them to go into it. I have had the most success, I think, in just reaching out to people, cold calling people, sending emails, um, because surprisingly, there, there are a lot of senior people um, and well-established researchers and professionals in the STI world who are super willing to help early career professionals. So just reaching out, and I think that that will continue as the next generation comes up, and hopefully that's a value that will be instilled in all future STI professionals, because um, it is a smaller community when you compare it to other types of work. So I think it's important to um, make those connections and be really involved. I would tell a person who's going into the STI field to take any opportunity that's presented to them. Because I think it's a good way to make connections. You never know what's going to happen. And also people have such unique perspectives and you can learn so much. Um, never a bad idea. That's great advice. Reach out, build those connections. And um, mm -hmm. I think that's a wonderful link back to the Sticks group as well, which is exactly yeah. what we're trying to do and how um, exactly. we got to know each other. So, no, I think mm -hmm. that's a great way to end the podcast. So thank you so yeah. much, Stacey. Real pleasure. Good Absolutely. luck with um, all of your activities and all of your research out in Texas. And Thanks. thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to the Sticks and Stones podcast today. If you do have a moment to rate and review us, it really does help other people to find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under Sticks STI. That's Sticks S-T-I-I-X-S-T-I. -I -I -I. Goodbye and thanks for listening.